Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm running in this leadership contest for one reason, and one reason alone. I think the people in this country have had enough of experts. I want that all the terrors of the earth will be unleashed upon our head. But at every step in my political life, I've asked myself, Hey, everybody, take a look at me. I've got three credibility. I may not have a job, but I have a good time with the boys I meet down on the line. Whatever charisma is, I don't have it. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, a podcast that is slowly becoming less and less relevant as British politics has decided to parody itself to the extent where I wonder if we're the alternate bizarro universe of a far more sensible place where they imagine us for their nightmares and Ben Stiller films. I'm Tiernan Duyeb and I'm wondering if I should announce a decision to run as a leader for all the major political parties on account of not really having a fucking clue about anything and nearly all my emotions have been wiped out from endless watching the repetitive horrors of recent political news and so therefore I think I'm perfectly qualified and numb enough for the jobs. As I started working on this week's episode, Nigel Farage, with his face like a squid carcass stuffed full of plastic testicles, has resigned as the leader of UKIP. There is every possibility that by the time you hear this, he will have retracted his resignation, as we all know Nigel Farage has even less conviction than Sean Ryder when he was asked to write a new Euro 2016 anthem for the English football team. What, spend all that time so it only gets two weeks of airplay? I know, Sean, I know. Up until the EU referendum, Nigel Farage was one of the most successfully unsuccessful UK politicians ever, having failed to get elected as an MP five times, having one of the worst ever attendance records to European Parliament as an MEP, and selfishly even failing to die after crashing his own plane a few years ago. It's just been disappointment after disappointment with Nigel, hasn't it? What he has managed to do, though, is stir up xenophobia across the UK to the point of depressingly acceptance, help force other political parties to have to mention immigration in all of their policies, help everyone realise that if you say a Sikh Heil uh, is someone actually just doing an impression of a pot plant enough, then people might actually believe you, and bang on about a referendum on the UK's EU membership enough that it actually happened, we all voted to leave, and now Nigel's fucking off to make sure he doesn't have to deal with it. Thanks very much, Nigel, you fucking shit. 
All I can say is that I really hope whatever job Nigel Farage goes for next, with his face like a shaved pug that's been stretched over a baboon's ass, I hope that someone from the EU manages to jump in before him and gets it first. Sadly, what's actually more likely to happen, judging by Nigel Farage's recent sightings with Rupert Murdoch and talks with potential Conservative leader Andrea Leadsom, is that he'll end up in the House of Lords or rejoining the Conservatives. Because, you know, Nigel's all anti-establishment and against unelected bureaucrats and that. And despite him, a commodity trainer turned sort of snake oil salesman, sorry, politician, telling the European Parliament that none of them ever had a proper job in their lives, Nigel is still staying in his job as an MEP in order to leech cash off them in exactly the way he complained other EU bureaucrats do. In his resignation speech today, Nigel said he wants his life back, you know, after ruining so many other people's, and that the real me will come out. Which is terrifying, but I'm sure either this will finally be the proof of the giant lizard people conspiracy, or he will turn out to be a small frog inside the robotised body of a much larger frog. As for UKIP, what will happen now with only a bunch of racist posters and a motley band of idiots left? Well, unless of course Nigel is back in about 10 minutes time, then who will lead them? Man-ape Paul Nuttall doesn't look like he's aware of where he is half the time. Suzanne Evans, with her skin pulled so tight it's like she's almost self-mummified, she doesn't seem like it'd be safe to leave her in charge of a plug socket, and Douglas Carswell can't even control his own face. So yeah, to be fair, it could be any of those three, as they're all perfectly qualified to lead that party. How do they decide a new leader in UKIP? I have no idea. I'm guessing it's just given to the first person to turn up to the interview late and blame immigrants for it. And I haven't even got started on Boris Johnson, who this week, after helping push the Leave vote, decided not to run as Conservative leader and instead is writing telegraph columns on the steps the next Prime Minister should take to leave the EU. Yeah, it's a bit like taking a shit in someone else's living room, going home and then calling them up and saying, you should really clean that up, it's a terrible mess. Thanks, Boris. Anyway, more on British politics own Wreck-It Ralph in a bit. Uh, this show is pretty full of things, thanks to this week being officially known as the We've Totally Fucked It Shitstorm Aftermath. There's an interview with Asha Dresner who explains how, as well as racists and thoughtless MPs, we now need to be terrified of robots as well. Hooray! And there's some thoughts on the new leadership contests, a new jingle, exciting, and I prove that what Cassette Boy does is a real, real skill, uh, one that I don't have. Thanks again for downloading and listening, or well, even just downloading. I have no idea if you actually listen, but I'm prepared to pretend that you do, if you're prepared to keep downloading. Um, I know I say this every week, but it is my version of hardworking people, or fix the roof while the sun is shining, or whatever Farage's tagline was. What was it? I'm not a racist, but I think I think that was it. Anyway, if you haven't reviewed the show on iTunes, please, please do. Even just the star rating without any words is very helpful, and I am that shallow, uh, and it would almost satiate my need for instant gratification that I get from stand-up comedy, almost. And of course, if you have any comments or thoughts about the show, do drop me a line on partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. And if this mad spell of politics ever finishes, uh, I'm thinking of doing some one-topic specials through the summer on, say, just the NHS or Syria or subjects like that. So if you have anything in particular that you're interested in or want to tell me that that's the worst idea ever, then do let me know. Uh, I'm also very aware that it's all UK politics on this show at the moment, and there has been an election in Australia this week, as well as Spain. Uh, Austria may have to redo their presidential election, and of course America and all of its terrifying possibilities as well. And of course, all the endless sad news from the Middle East. So 
I will try to get to some of those things in future episodes too, but it's nice to know what you guys want to hear and uh, the sort of stuff you're interested in. Uh, And to start this week's show properly, I thought it'd be nice to take a step back from the EU referendum fallout, or referendum as I've been calling it, and instead look at some of the many, many things that have also been happening in UK politics that have been completely ignored, but are also hugely depressing. So here are some... THINGS YOU MAY HAVE MISSED! Last week, the UN released a report that said the UK government were in breach of international human rights obligations, and it wasn't just because no one should have to see Michael Gove's face on television that many times. It is basically torture. No, it was based on the austerity measures that have been imposed over the last few years, and it's a pretty big deal, this report, as it means that the UK is now placed on the same list as countries like North Korea or Syria. You know, all those places idiots on social media often tell you to go if you don't like democracy. Yeah, well lucky we saved our airfare, eh, idiot, as we can now just stay here for exactly the same experience. The report states that the UN is deeply concerned about the cuts and changes to social benefits and the effect that that's having on disadvantaged and marginalised individuals and groups. You know, the ones the government has been referring to as shirkers for years and just generally being crap to. It goes on to say that the UK government are failing to meet their obligation to mobilise the maximum available resources for the implementation of economic, social and cultural rights, which is a very long way of saying you've been total shit and you've cocked everything up. And as if to prove that, the report also mentions the living wage not being a wage that you can live on, discriminations against migrant workers, use of food banks, zero-hour contracts, the Trade Union Act, the increase in homelessness, being forced to pretend to have optimism about how the England football team will do, okay, not that one, but well, pretty much everything else we all knew was terrible since 2010, but the government insisted was going great guns. Hopefully what this will mean is that the government will see this and have to change things. But then this report was done before the entire country voted to knock us back into another recession, so it may just be that countries such as Turkey will instead see an influx of UK emigrants over the next few years, all seeking better human rights. The UK's credit rating has dropped from a triple A to a double A, which would be brilliant news if we were a battery. However, we're not. The pound is still hovering near its 30-year low, and George Osborne has announced that the government are, once again, going to miss their budget surplus target for 2019 to 2020. Let's face it, the Chancellor of the Exchequer missing planned budget targets has become a bit like the UK's version of bears shitting in the woods. It's almost a yearly tradition. But what does this mean? Well, other than saying that we're not going to reach it, Gideon, who spent most of the post-Brexit result hiding under a rock, has not said a thing. That's really useful. Thanks, Georgie. So it could just mean more cuts and a new surplus target. It could mean that he runs away uh, until the country gets a new prime minister and probably new chancellor, and then he just leaves it all to them while he hides on a skiing trip involving several kinds of snow. Hooray! The UK is finally excelling at something, everyone. Oh, wait, it's child poverty. Oh, dear. Child poverty has increased in the UK by 200,000 and is predicted to get worse due to our post-EU referendum economic collapse. Secretary of Work and Pensions and Conservative leadership challenger Stephen Crabb dealt with those enormous figures by saying, look over there, no, no, stop looking at that, Uh, look over there, household income figures are up slightly so we are doing brilliantly, hey? Before then listing various things that could also cause child poverty, such as worklessness, which you know has increased under the Conservatives, or debt or addiction, which have increased under the Conservatives as well, family breakdowns, which could have been caused due to all the cuts made by the Conservatives, or educational attainment, which, yeah, look, you get the idea. 
I would urge children everywhere to follow Stephen Crabbe around over the next few weeks, tugging at his clothes, constantly asking him for food. If he shoes you away, he'll look terrible, and if he doesn't, he'll look terrible. So that's a win-win. Again, really, this is a really horribly upsetting figure, and with post-EU climate, this is unlikely to improve anytime soon. So I suppose all we can do is hope that this increased child poverty gives huge inspiration to a new generation of musical writers. The Wales Bill is to be discussed this week uh, to clarify Welsh devolution and see what further powers the Welsh Assembly should be given. With Plaid Cymru now pushing for independence and the country overwhelmingly voting to leave the EU, it does seem like maybe they're all now grown up enough now to uh, go it alone and become a small independent country, you know, one the size of Wales. The Investigative Powers Bill has had its second reading in the House of Lords by many people who are too old and privileged to understand how the internet really works and probably presume it's all just done by magic. However, they were worried about privacy issues, probably because many of them have tons and tons of things that they want to hide, uh, but at the same time they reinforced the idea of programming devices with a backdoor to encryption which completely negates wanting to protect privacy in the first place. This will now be passed back to the House of Commons and then a vote, but it doesn't look like it's been challenged anywhere near enough and so ultimately we could all end up with an unelected Prime Minister having access to all our emails without our say-so. Hey, I mean at least some of North Korea is sunny, we don't even have that. If you listen back to episode 12 of this show, you can hear the interview with law lecturer and privacy expert Paul Bernal about the IP bill uh, and hear lots and lots of information on that episode all about that. Oh, and lastly, the plans to privatise the land registry are going ahead despite constant evidence that it brings in more money than it costs. Still, on the plus side, if it is sold off, then whenever people say we need to take our country back, you can point them in the direction of the companies that have actually bought all of its various bits. Phew, that was cheery, eh? makes you almost long for party-inviting stories instead. Well, almost. Considering all the current doom and gloom in the political news, I thought it would be a good idea this week to add to that with the possible terror of robots taking all of our jobs. Yes, you are welcome. And yes, it is like a really, really boring Philip K. Dick novel. You know, the mechanisation of our workforce. Uh, but it's an increasing and often ignored problem. Computers do so much of our work for us now, from map reading to banking, and with technology improving at an ever faster rate, it could be merely years before you wake up one morning to find that a robot is doing your job much more efficiently than you ever could, with your stupid, stupid person hands. Or, in the case of many politicians, a robot is probably doing it with a lot more warmth and empathy. As a type 1 diabetic, I now have an electronic pump, so I live in constant fear of a robot uprising that may mean I won't be able to eat chocolate unless I obey their orders. And while I assume that my many years of playing extensive amounts of PlayStation, spending hours slaying dragons and saving villages, I think that that might mean I could survive in a robotized world, the fact is it just mostly means I've forgotten to put a wash on in real life. Obviously, it's not all as scary as that, and uh, saying that, you haven't seen the washing that I've got left, but really, it's not as scary as that. And this week, to explain it to me and to you as well, is Asha Dresner. Now, Asha is a political policy writer who's done everything from write policy papers to writing speeches for Ed Miliband. And yes, we've all heard Ed speak, and that's not an easy job, is it? It's tough enough, Ed. Tough enough. Got it? <sighs> Anyway, Asha is an expert in many things and has studied the effects of technology on the jobs market, so kindly had a chat with me all about it. Now, I should say this is the very first face-to-face -face interview I've done for this podcast, and oddly, what it proved is that I have a stupid, stupid loud voice, and so even though the microphone was much nearer Asha than me, you can still hear me more like I'm in your brain hollering each individual word. 
I am sorry. Uh, sort of. Uh, I will try and find one of those sort of trombone mute things to pop in my gob before I do the next one. Here's Asher. Right, considering that the last week of politics is, has already been terrifying enough as it is, are we now also at risk of robots taking everything over and taking all our jobs in a sort of... Because to me that sounds like a sci-fi nightmare. Is this something we should genuinely be scared about? So, firstly, if it happens, it'll be slower than Brexit. Um, so, <laughs> for you, thank God yeah, for that. So right. Slower than the destruction of, you know, the UK's place in the world. Well, the short answer is it's ever less sci-fi. We don't know yet. We don't know enough to say for certain, but it's looking less sci-fi each year. So there are a bunch of, I can give you a bunch of reasons why the apocalyptic scenario will happen. Right, okay. And a bunch of reasons why it won't. And nobody knows exactly which of these will work out. But the ones that why it will happen is get, are getting more attention than ever. So that's the way things are tipping. So why might so it happen? Here's what, 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 what might happen. The people who think it will happen know that in the past, technology has created as many jobs as it's destroyed. They, they don't think... The main thing they say is, just because that's happened in the past, it doesn't mean it will always happen in the future. Firstly, technology can do more than it's ever been able to do. Normally, in the past 100, 200 years, technology's taken away physical labour. But it's more and more able to take brain work. Computers can recognise patterns and sense things. You've got computers beating the world champion in chess in 1997 and then the world champion in Go, which everyone thought was like a Google Times tougher than chess did last year. And so it looks like there are a lot of jobs that could be taken. I mean, the, the, the most authoritative study looked at 702 different jobs and ranked them in order of how likely they are to be automated in the next 20 years and came up with the figure that 47% of the jobs in the US could be automated. 47%? And 57% across the OECD countries. Now, they're not saying that there won't be other jobs that come in their place, but that is a crazily high number. And these, these guys looked at a lot, of, a lot of different jobs. So just to give you some examples, right? If you're a pharmacist, you think, okay, that seems relatively safe. There's already a robot pharmacist at work at the University of California writing prescriptions more accurately than a human can do more in, 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 per hour than a, than a human. Financial advice, there's automated algorithm-based portfolio, what they call robo-advisors. And they already manage $50 billion worth of assets. Somewhere. Oh, my God. So, I mean, I, I was discussing with, with a friend and, and, and he was like, well, I would never give my mind to a computer. It sounds dumb. And I was like, well, you, the day that some, your friend says, my money's managed by a computer and I got a better rate of return than you last year, will be the day that you think again about that, you know. And there's artificially intelligent asset management. Journalism, that seems like it's the kind of thing that will be safe, but yeah. no. The Associated Press have already automated a lot of their reporting of business results. But how, because, because journalism requires opinions, doesn't it? Or So not all of it does. Right. There's business results is pretty formulaic, and especially where it's, uh, where it's uh, numer numeric heavy, num you know. Sure. Um, that can be automated. But the most fascinating thing to me was that they did a survey in Sweden to find out who could tell whether a sports report was written by a real journalist. Or, or not, and and 37% um, of readers thought an automated report was written by a real journalist. Oh no, that's terrifying. So, that would be such a huge blow to you if you've spent ages writing a sports article. And, uh, there's a lovely article yeah. in the Financial Times written by a journalist called Sarah O'Connor, in which she tries to write a better and faster... Yeah, great name. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah. And she tries to write a better and faster article than a computer, whose job is to, is to write. And the computer does a good job. Certainly does it much faster and with good syntax and good grammar and everything. 
Sarah is confident at the end of the article that the computer didn't do a good job of picking out what was news. But, I mean, that's already, that's, that's the technology that exists today. We can all agree it's going to get better, right? So that's, <laughs> that, that's, that's crazy stuff. God, because you know, you know, I did. Uh, I well, I've seen a stand-up done by a robot, uh, but admittedly, I wrote material for the robot. So without me, he would have no jokes. It was a a robo thespian, and he performed live on stage. Did you get laughs? But, yeah, he got loads of laughs, and that was really worrying, actually. Where hmm, presumably they were like laughs that you gave him, or like, was it, or was it just like taking the mickey out of himself for not being a human? Yeah, it's I, I kind of minority which we all discriminate against. Let's be honest. That's true. Yeah, yeah, it was very uh, robotist. I don't know. It was um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was all jokes uh, that were robot based. You know, things like oh, you know what really pushes my buttons? Yeah, it's this guy over here, and lots of, <laughs> yeah, lots of yeah. jokes like that. Yeah. But yeah, it's 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 interesting that you you say it's jobs that you, you think would require a human element as well. So so potentially there's there's lots of different levels of work that could be affected right in this list that these guys have Frey and Osborne which is their most authoritative study so far that one some one of the most common jobs which is pretty susceptible to automation is accountancy like a 95% chance of automation and then if you look to the other end of the list the safest jobs priest teacher psychotherapist <laughs> and I'm pretty sure you know if comedian's not in there I mean, you'll be in there at the right end, at the end you want, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, even if you're writing for, for a robot, I mean. <laughs> but, um, I mean, it goes on. I mean, there's automation in the discovery stage of law. I mean, because that's a lot of um, looking through documents to find out what is relevant. That's being, being automated. And then, you know, trucking, delivery, that's going, you know, there's all driverless cars, drivers. So the people who, are at the, who pay most attention to technology are the people who are most concerned about the jobs that are going to go. The people who stand back from it a little bit, economists who are most who are kind of more in touch with the fact that a lot of jobs get created mm. are less tend to be less less. Okay, worried. so presumably, and um, this is going to really affect how people live. The the more jobs that go to robots, that's the more more people without work. So that is the big question. So let me give you a few more reasons to be terrified. Okay, and thanks, Craig. Yeah, I'll give you a few reasons why it might all be fine. Okay, yeah, bad news first. Do that first. Yeah, exa- yeah, exactly. Yeah, the other reason why people are worried is because it seems like a lot of new industries that are coming up might not create as many jobs as the industries that are going down. I mean, the traditional example is Kodak employed at its pinnacle 140,000 people. Um, Instagram, when it was sold to Facebook, employed 13 people, and Kodak is no more. And, you know, you can think of a lot of industries that are coming up, like synthetic biology and so on, but they don't look like big employers. And that's another reason to be worried. And finally, the last one is um, the internet. When music goes online, prices fall. You get music for free now. When journalism goes online, prices fall. We can get some of it for free now. And that could happen to objects with 3D printing. If you can download your template and print and all of that could mean those sectors could support fewer jobs. And once you can print out, say, a toy for your kid in your house, because 3D printers are cheap enough for you to have one at home, then there are a lot, you know, think about the number of people you might be replacing, the people who change, not just people who made it, also people who deliver it to you and, and so on and so on. So there are plenty of reasons to think there might be an apocalyptic uh, meltdown. But I have the good one, the good, good news on hand, which is obviously throughout history, new jobs have been created that nobody could ever imagine. There's no limit to what humanity might imagine or want. And there's no limit to what the economy might have to supply. The thing I always think about when I think about this is the time I went back to my parents' house and they were talking about how hard it was to get tickets to the cat cafe. Now, 
they were just like, I want to get, I heard this cat cafe opened, and I, and, I, and I want to go, but I can't get tickets. It's like a four-month waiting list. For me, a cat cafe, right? Honestly, you know, I never, but obviously there are enough, <laughs> that's what pops up, and there are enough people that want to go to it. Yeah, and that's just for me an example of something that I never would have thought of. That I should tell you, your parents sound brilliant. I, I like that they're kids going, that's, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think my parents have ever had that conversation. That sounds great. <laughs> I mean, you know, there are, for all the jobs that don't exist anymore, people that light the lamps in the streets and knock on your windows in order to wake you up <laughs> and being replaced by alarm clocks, there are, you know, brand managers, graphic designers, database managers, you you just have to think about the music industry maybe 150 years ago 100 years ago it was um musicians traveling around us asking for pennies maybe sheet music and then and then sort of 50 years ago it was what 10 years 20 years ago it was roadies producers promoters djs all jobs that were unimaginable so plenty of jobs that we can't imagine sure might come up but but a lot of those jobs you mentioned require training and skill you know is there going to become quite a big gap between skill level workers if Right. If those jobs require certain, all those jobs you mentioned require a certain understanding of computers, sometimes coding, sometimes right. design, and then there's the question of, you know, there will be some people that may not be able to get the education to do that. Is, do you think this is going to create a kind of well, well, a wage gap once again, you know, but a bit expand it further? Well, in terms of education, obviously schools need to change what they teach to teach coding and to teach things that they didn't teach for me when I was in school. Sure, so, and, yeah. And, and, but it will be a problem because if the churn goes faster and there's no jobs for people like my age, for example, who didn't learn coding by the time I'm, you know, middle-aged, then, yeah, the thing you will probably need more of is the ability to get cheap or free learning retraining in the middle of your life. And I, again, good news is you can learn more online than ever. You know, I've learned a ridiculous amount <laughs> going to YouTube and looking at lectures for courses that I wouldn't be able to afford if I went actually going yeah. to those universities. But yeah, I think governments are going to need to put more money into training, retraining, and um, that could be. And I mean, especially for for, for older people. Because, because I think there's a big, I mean, and again, uh, recent events notwithstanding, but the, the government of the last six years has all been about hardworking people. And you've got yes. to, it's all about, we're supporting hardworking people. But if there are a number of people that can't work hard because their industry no longer exists for human beings, that's going to probably affect some people's mental health and uh, kind of general outlook, I'd have thought. Right. So the doomsday scenario is, um, is this, the, the Bank of England have taken this figure of 47%, well, 57% across OECD potential automation. And sorry, that's 15%, 57% of jobs being susceptible to automation. Right. And worked out that that is equivalent to 15 million jobs in the UK, 80 million in the US. And there are 30 million people, work, 31 million people working in the UK, roughly. So that's an incredible proportion of the jobs. And if it actually means those jobs don't get replaced, yeah, that's a massive social problem. It exactly means anyone who it means it's harder to get your identity from work and it's harder to get your self-esteem from work. It means, you know, if you're out of work, you're more likely to have be less optimistic, a lower confidence, have, you know, more mental health problems. That's the drain on the health service and just in general. But firstly, again, I'm, we don't, I'm not saying this is definitely going to happen. Sure, this is like worst sure. scenario. And yeah, I mean, you can't really talk about this in terms of what politicians are talking about today, because I think today this is not really on the agenda. I think of this as like roughly where climate change was in the late 90s. So something where the people who are closest to the topic know about it and are familiar with the impending danger. But politicians and the public are, are less aware that something big might have to change. 
Okay. Um, the, well, what scares me about that, though, is that we've all realised that we came to climate change too late and now it's we can never fully, <laughs> you know, fix the things we've done because we should have dealt with it back then. Is this going to be a similar scenario to this where it's not on the agenda now and we'll get to it and then suddenly go, oh, oh, there's, oh, you know, we've got an automated government bringing it in because there's <laughs> a robot well, prime minister. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't talk about Jeremy Hunt. Yeah, I was gonna say. I was gonna say if Osborne went up for it's very close. Yeah, I think this will be easier to see coming. And also, uh, the analogy is not perfect because this the, the climate change we now know definitely is, was a, is a problem, and sure. this we don't. But sure. but um, but I think this will be easier to see coming, but still very hard to rearrange society in order to deal with. I mean, if, okay, look, between 1920 and the war, unemployment was always 10% or higher. So high unemployment for a long period of time can happen. It's not a crazy thing. Mm. Mass unemployment of the kind that some of the most pessimistic people are talking about is new. But And if that happens, then absolutely you'll need something. My view is there's no solution that is within the bounds of what current politics talks about. If you ask most politicians what should be done about this, they tend to think about unemployment in the traditional way. And they'll say, sure. well, you need retraining, more education, more entrepreneurship. And those things are all great. But I don't think if unemployment is unprecedentedly high for unprecedentedly long, that quite cuts it. Right. <laughs> and that takes you to more radical solutions. Yeah. So in terms of more radical solutions, I mean, the one that I've heard, in fact, quite a lot about recently is the universal basic income. And I know Switzerland have just rejected this. Uh, I think they had, but they didn't have any major parties backing it. I think all all parties on all left and right were both saying no, and that led to a public result of going no because why would you? <laughs> you know, there's right. nothing we can. Right. But is universal basic income? Uh, you know, part of me thinks that sounds lovely. <laughs> you get money for not having to do it. You get money just for being alive. Yeah, yeah. Is it is it doable? Would that work? Okay, so if anyone, so I'll just explain how what I see universal basic sure. income is in case someone hasn't heard of it, exactly as you said, everyone in every citizen gets a certain amount of money for nothing, like a pensioner does. And some people want it to be a de- the equivalent to a decent salary. Some people think it should be just subsistence. And there are lots of reasons why that's a lovely idea. People on the right like it because it makes the tax system simple. You can do away with all other benefits. You can do sure. away with all means-tested benefits. Just everyone gets the same. They like it because it's because of this idea that the economy relies on people taking risks, starting companies, even you know learning new skills, trying to say revise for to for example to take a master's or write a symphony or write a play or you know do basic research. Those things are make society great, but they're not always profitable. And the idea is that we can get those things because it gives people an opportunity to devote themselves to those things. The left like it because it eliminates poverty. Nobody gets nothing it's impossible to not be able to afford food or 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 heat and also it means that so look in the same way that nobody's stigmatized for going to the doctor because everyone can get it for free in this way nobody would be stigmatized for having that kind of income because everybody gets it sure so that's why it's nice and it could be practical. The Royal Society of Arts have done, arts and manufacturers and commerce have done a lot of work on this. And they've come up with this. Put tax up, 1% of GDP. If you're a migrant, you get it after, you get the universal basic income after you've contributed for a certain number of years, like traditional benefits. And then everyone between the ages of 25 and 65 gets £72 a week. And then about double that if you're a pensioner. 
Right. And what's good about that is that they've done the sums. Right, <laughs> um, sure. Um, and there, like you said, there are trials all over the place in, in Oakland, plans for a pilot in, fin- in Finland, um, in um, Utrecht, the, the Green Party have tabled discussion on it. John McDonald said their Labour Party are looking at it. They even did it in Canada in the late 70s. Oh, did they? And okay. they basically, they gave everyone in a small village a certain amount of money for about three years. And it's an incredible story because I think what happened was they took records, a lot of data about what happened, and then the government changed and they, they junked it and they lost all the results. So all of the data about what happened was like sitting, gathering mould in someone's garage for like a few decades until recently when... Right. When... In, they started getting interested in this again and then they looked through it and they basically found there was a drop in people going to hospital there were more te- teenagers staying on in school so the people who want to say if you give people money they'll just stay at home and do nothing and be lazy don't get any support from what happened in Canada but is it a good idea I mean my take what it's worth is sorry the last thing to say about the whole idea is itself is that some people think yeah, some people think it should be just enough you to get by right but then the incentive still to work because you want to actually improve your conditions in the same way as now other people think it should be fully replacing sort of a, a, a median salary right but then that would completely do away with the need to do jobs at all yeah exactly and, and unless then, yeah everything becomes automated i suppose there's no real reason for that to happen this is the thing so what's my take on it is that if in the world as it is today so unemployment is i mean unemployment is low and um it's a non-starter because it means some politician saying, in the world as it stands, we're going to take tax money and give it to rich people. Yeah, we're going to give it to everyone else, but we're also going to give it to rich people. Sure. And I think that in the world as it is today, that's electorally a non-starter. I'm not saying it's actually undesirable, but it's electorally a non-starter. Sure. Right. And is there something, because you said uh, the Royal... So it's the Royal Society of Arts yes. and Business. Yeah. They said it would be from 25 onwards, and youth unemployment's high in the UK for under 25, so that wouldn't that still true. wouldn't well, fix they, that they, problem. Or... True. Well, they have a bit... They, they give something in their plan to, to under 25. Sort of That's right, OK. Yeah. But my, but my take is that really the question of whether it could work or be supported today isn't really the question. The good question is, if there was mass unemployment because of technology, then would it work? Right. Would it be? And I think then... It would be a great idea, but it wouldn't fix the problem. Um, right. It would be a great idea because in a world of mass unemployment and a world of probably a very small number of companies making a great deal of profit, for reasons that I might come to afterwards, it doesn't make sense to say that... But this way, if there's not enough work to go around, then it's no longer really your fault if you haven't got a job. And absolutely, it would be important to, to support people, even if just to keep customers going to shops, right? To keep the economy going. Sure. So we, we may need it when the Brexit happens. <laughs> fully. Right. You know, if you look at the... Forget the robots. Give it a couple of years. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Brexit, <laughs> I, I love Brexit. Right. Brexit, catastrophe. It's time for the minimum, minimum income. Yeah. But, um, but my take on it is that if that happens in a world where there's really massive unemployment, I think that our cultural desire to feel like we're being useful and feel like we're earning really, really strong. And it's, it would be tough for any politician to come to say to... It's going to be tougher than people think. It's not just a setting up a new programme, right? And yeah, it's, yeah. it's actually a whole mindset. Of course. And, and that's... Because and that's, that, you're brought up thinking you should... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Work and that's how you, and, and to change that is a would be yeah, huge, wouldn't exactly. it? Yeah, and also probably any viable version of the program would just give a bit of money and would be subsistence, and that probably would still be true if there was enough unemployment. And in that case, I don't think you really solved the problem. You sort of sure. solved the problem for me. My version, my my answer, you solved the problem of why people wouldn't starve. You haven't solved the problem of how you get enough money into enough pockets to keep the economy going. Right. So I think it's maybe, if, if there's mass unemployment, probably necessary, but not sufficient. The best way to sum up the last week's politics would be for me to scream for 45 minutes into the microphone while you all bang your heads on the nearest hard surface throughout. But that wouldn't be great listening and it would mess up your lovely, lovely hair. While many have given easy Game of Thrones or House of Cards analogies, I would instead like to say that this past week's politics has been far more like the film Taken 3. You know, it's funny when it isn't meant to be, and when it isn't funny, it's just unwatchable, depressing, entirely unnecessary. Why, oh why, haven't things been put in place to prevent this sort of thing happening again? And if you're involved in it, you probably assume that it wasn't doing your career any good. I'm going to skip post-EU technicalities this week, as it looks like, unless something changes, Article 50 won't be issued until a new Prime Minister is announced, if it's issued at all. So let's all hold tight in this period of limbo for however long, knowing that this isn't the fun sort of limbo, despite the bar being set very, very low from the start. Instead, let's look at the turmoil inside the two main parties. As the Conservatives set out to play their own version of Britain's Got Talent, where none of the contestants have any and are all embarrassing themselves constantly, and Labour, who seem to be playing their own version of I'm in the Labour PLP, get our leader out of here. The Conservatives' leadership candidates have been selected with names like Nicky Morgan and Jeremy Hunt deciding to back down after being distracted by something shiny. Blonde guinea pig with an unfortunate talking arse growth, Boris Johnson, also decided to back down from running for leader in a move that can only be described as the political version of a child closing their eyes, covering their ears and singing la 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 in the hope that if they can't see the mess they've made, then it just doesn't exist. This of course hasn't stopped Johnson from stating his five point plan to leave the EU in the Telegraph, knowing full well he'll never have to implement it. I mean, his fifth point is, the future is very bright indeed, which goes to show he doesn't even know how to write plans, that is not a point in a plan. Also, whenever I hear the future is very bright, I automatically assume it's due to some sort of terrible nuclear failure, which under Prime Minister Johnson would have been quite probable. 
Boris's leadership chances were probably thrown by Chucky's worst cousin, Michael Gove, deciding to stand as a leadership candidate himself rather than back Bojo, which depressingly shows how much of a game it is to all of them. And also how deluded the upside-down volumetric flask with glasses really is to assume that he's more likeable than Boris. Truth is, most of the country hate both Michael Gove and Boris Johnson equally, but at least when Michael Gove falls over, it looks like it hurts. Currently, the most popular candidate in the nationwide Who is the Least Shit contest is the Conservatives' own Cruella de Vil, Theresa May. May says she's best to unify the party, which, let's face it, was unified anyway, they're just very good at dividing everyone else. Despite being on the Remain side, she's also vowed that under her leadership, Britain would leave the EU rather than remain through the back door, so I think she's effectively promising to give the EU a colonic, I'm not sure. In an attempt to say she is an establishment, May talked about how she doesn't gossip about people over lunch or go for drinks in Parliament's bars, which instead, I think, just made her sound like she doesn't really have many friends. In terms of what she actually stands for, May has already backed down from wanting to leave the European Convention of Human Rights, which is good, especially as she once claimed it stopped the deportation of an illegal immigrant because he had a pet cat. But everything else about her is truly, truly scary. May is the Home Office Minister that created the Go Home or Face Arrest bans that not only echoed the sentiments of fascist groups towards refugees, but also didn't really work, with far more complaints about tone than arrests of illegal immigrants. May has a scary, almost UKIP tone about her when it comes to citizens from other countries in the UK. Uh, last week, she didn't seem to understand that if you speak English as a second language, it does mean that you still speak English and have bothered to learn more than one language, instantly making you better than most British people. She also won't clarify the status of EU citizens already in the UK if we leave under her leadership, which is very threatening language, but not surprising as May is the one who proposed the stupid idea that non-EU migrants should earn 35 grand a year or be deported, which now that we've left the EU an average UK salary is 26.4 thousand a year, we should probably all leave. And she's responsible for the investigatory powers bill, though on the plus side, if it does go through and she becomes leader, Theresa May will know what the public wants and need, but that's mostly because she'll have read all of our emails. Then there's Andrea Leadsom, who many think, if she got to the final two, might actually win. This is largely because she was on the Vote Leave team, and the Conservative members are also largely Vote Leave, so they'll probably go for her. That's pretty much the only reason, though, as otherwise Andrea Leadsom is just as terrifying and as awful as the rest of them. I mean, looking at her voting record, she's nearly always voted against any bill promoting equality or human rights. Uh, she's voted for any bill reducing benefits, any anti-immigration policies, and generally just for having more war. You know, just more of it. Oh, and she voted for the privatisation of Britain's forests, which, if it hadn't been ditched, was the sort of policy that sounded very much like it was stolen from a film. You know the sort of film. A villain decides to kill all of the nature to use it to make bad juice and then the hero and whatever creatures are in the forest save it using love and swords and flying things. You know the one? Well, Andrea Ledson basically wants the bad juice and everything in the forest to die. Up until 2013, Andrea also seemed very pro-EU, voting for more EU integration. This is probably why Boris Johnson is now backing her as a leader, as they both seem very happy to flip-flop on conviction when it seems appropriate. So expect those luxury condos built on the corpses of former Ewok colonies coming your way in 2020. Then heading up the least popular three, there is Michael Gove, a man who, while promoting the Brexit, said himself that people have had enough of experts and then chose to run for leadership as if to prove it. 
After a Vote Leave campaign that caught him lying about his own dad, calling the Remain campaign childish in the same speech that he mentioned the Beano and Batman, and ending with him turning his back on his only ally, Boris Johnson, Michael now seems to think that the public is going to trust him. Yeah, good one, mate. A leaked email from his wife, Sarah Vine, showed she seemed to be the Lady Macbeth behind his... Uh, bottom, I suppose. If Lady Macbeth, you know, wrote vacuous, shitty columns about kitchens and assumed ruining people's lives was a bit like wearing a dress you don't like. If we've anything to learn from those Shakespeare tales, it's that the main characters die and then their name becomes a curse when it's said before a show. So hopefully it'll only be a matter of time before the man who ruined education for years, then ruined the wham rap, then ruined the legal system, then Britain, will be thought of as a curse. Don't say gove around here, the thespians will say, or we'll all assume you're a backstabbing shit. Least but not last is Liam Fox, who is a disgraced MP, who looks a lot like his parents specifically asked for a child with an extremely punchable face. Liam is genuinely disgraced as an MP after calling for lots and lots of Ministry of Defence cuts, claiming the government didn't have the budget, and then he claimed about 40 grand in expenses for things like his phone bill, because, you know, those sex chat lines are pricey. He then paid for trips to Sri Lanka, paid for by the Sri Lankan government, and never declared them in the Register of Members' financial interests, which breaches parliamentary rules. And in 2011, it turned out that he'd brought a buddy along on several trips using parliamentary expenses and pretended that he was an advisor. Most boring lads night ever. So that's the sort of Prime Minister that Liam Fox would be. One that'll tell you you can't eat because we need to save money, and then you'll see him later that night using that money to buy his mates a takeaway while calling someone in New York to tell them about it. And lastly, there is Stephen Crabb, who was a Remain campaigner, is homophobic, hates disabled people, ignores child poverty, uh, is a Welsh MP, so might not be able to vote on English votes for English laws, and looks like a person in a film who has no personality and dies quickly. Yes, he is the Star Trek redshirt of the leadership race, and considering there are no people of ethnic minorities running because it's a Tory leadership, he might be the first to go. So in conclusion, none of this really matters anyway, as you're not going to get a say in it. First round is decided by Conservative MPs until it's whittled down to just two of the worst people you've ever heard of. And then the 150,000 Conservative members, I mean, unless you are one of those, and if you are, then well done for getting through this podcast every week. I really didn't think it would be that sort of your sort of thing. Um, then the 150,000 Conservative members uh, who have to have registered before June 29th and been a member for at least three months by the time voting ends, they get to choose the winner. Democracy, hey? I am glad we recently voted for more of that. The new Overlord will be announced on September the 9th, followed by uh, announcements for new workhouses and World War III by October. Probably. I've invited you here today to announce my candidacy to become leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. And I do so for three clear reasons. First, it's vulnerable people to take dangerous and illegal journeys. Second, reward the wealthiest. And third, abuse the system. Now, of course, I'm only joking with that last bit because none of that will happen when we have such a strong opposition to fight against them, right? Right? Oh God, what the hell has happened to Labour? It seems that the Labour PLP, or in full, the Labour Parliamentary Labour Party, which is a lot of unnecessary extra Labour in that, anyway, they decided that the best thing to do when the entire rest of the country was in post-Brexit panic would be to think, hey, why is no one paying us any attention? And then try to unseat leader Jeremy, I bet he plays bowls Corbyn. 
you know, rather than sort of unite all together to tackle the crisis and fight a government that are in their own terrible mess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who'd do that, stupid? Their attempts to unseat Corbyn is mostly on the basis that he didn't do enough for the Remain campaign and seemed quite lacklustre about backing it. Then many of the Labour MBs have also said they really need a strong leader who can unite the party because a general election could happen at any time, even though most of the Conservative leadership candidates have said that there won't be if they get in. But I suppose considering several of the Labour MBs back Blair's notion that Saddam Hussein had weapons that could launch an attack within 45 minutes, time estimates aren't really their bag. So far, there have been letters from almost everyone in the Labour PLP and constituency Labour Party asking Jeremy to step down, ranging from very polite requests all the way to a few that wouldn't have gone amiss in the comments section of an online paper. Then, kicked off by Jeremy firing Hillary Benn, most of the shadow cabinet resigned, followed by other Labour MPs. And this didn't seem to unseat Corbyn, who saw it instead as a bit of a late spring clean. And the shadow cabinet has now been reshuffled more than a dodgy Vegas croupier. So then there was a vote of no confidence that was overwhelmingly against Jeremy Corbyn, 172 to 40. But like a bad open spot comic, Jeremy thought, well, at least 40 people like me and took that as enough to stay. Meanwhile, there's been talks of Angela Eagle challenging him in a leadership bid, but then she backed down and now she seems to be back up again. Love child of Richard Griffiths and Harry Potter, Tom Watson, is constantly having sneaky meetings about what to do and the entire PLP is in constant despair. Meanwhile, on the other side, Jeremy Corbyn has been hosting rallies for, well, himself that have been attended by quite a lot of people. The Labour membership has gained 60,000 extra people in the last week and it seems quite clear that if a leadership challenge does happen, the members are probably just going to vote for Jeremy again. So, what to do? Well, this is an issue that has been tearing apart the left and centre-left like nothing else, with people I like and admire being reduced to childish, spiteful comments, both very die-hard for Corbyn and vehemently against him. So, as with everything, it's really not very straightforward either way, and I don't know if there's a proper solution for this. So I thought I'd introduce a new section that may only appear in this week's show, but hey, here's a brand new jingle anyway. Both sides of the coin, or maybe it's both sides of the fence, or something else that has two sides. Hey, look right, some things are more complicated than you first think. Hmm. So firstly, here's the argument for why Jeremy Corbyn should leave, and then I'll follow it up with why he should stay, and at the end, you can decide for yourself like a grown-up. Or, if you're a child, uh, a very smart child who still probably acts more grown-up than anyone in Labour at the moment. Jeremy should go because, above all else, he doesn't have control of the Labour Party anymore. Admittedly, he's never really had it, with most of the PLP being angry that he ever became leader in the first place, even though some of them nominated him. But right now, with only 40 MPs on his side, that is not enough to run a party uh, without a lot of hard work, time that he doesn't have, and probably coalitions with other parties. If Jeremy doesn't have the MPs, they can't be the opposition, and that title could possibly go to the SNP, which would reduce short money funding for Labour and a lot of other voting opportunities. While many might seem quite happy about that, that the SNP would instead be the opposition, remember that the SNP can't decide on English votes for English laws, and nor do they have any MPs at all, really below the border, so actually it'd be shit. As well as this, and that is a pretty big deal, uh, as someone who voted for Jeremy in the leadership election last year, I've been disappointed in several things that he has or rather hasn't done. 
While I know he vouched for this new non-aggressive politics, he's been against the most aggressive bunch of bastards possible and it just feels like he hasn't really tried. Not preparing for Prime Minister's questions or in fact sticking up for the junior doctors in Prime Minister's questions as their strikes were happening. Not mentioning Ian Duncan Smith's resignations because he thought that his own government's welfare cuts were too much. You know, Corbyn didn't mention that the Monday after it happened, despite it being an obvious thing to say. I love the idea of new, nicer politics, but I'm not sure that we can do them until the not-nice bunch are out of government, and that is going to take some real extreme force. Also, polls for Labour have been pretty bad up and down the country since Corbyn's been in charge. And while we're probably four years away from an election and polls can be completely useless and off the ball, maybe Labour needs someone who can reach out a bit to other voters. It's proven that even if all the non-voters that support Labour voted for them, it still wouldn't be enough without the swing votes. And I'm not sure Jeremy is the man for swinging. Oh God, I'm so sorry I've given you that image. Okay, other side now. Jeremy should stay because, well, firstly, I think that this is a shitty, selfish move by the PLP choosing to do this now. The Conservatives have left things in absolute ruins and thanks to the PLP, we are instead looking at Labour and pointing the finger at them. Over two thirds of Labour members actually voted Remain, which is very high compared to the other parties. Also, bearing in mind that the majority in the country voted Leave, would they want a Labour leader that was adamantly for Remain? Probably not. I mean, we've seen how budding up with the Conservatives worked for Labour in Scotland, and well, it didn't. So perhaps not occupying a platform with Cameron was a very, very savvy thing to do. In the nine months Corbyn has been leader, which isn't that long, he has suffered unbelievable scrutiny from the press and his own MPs, and has still managed to push for a reversal and several cuts, and a U-turn on almost the entire budget, as well as doing better than the Conservatives in the local elections. Labour have also won four mayoral elections as well, so you start to wonder what would have happened if the PLP had supported Jeremy from day one and they'd really fought the Conservatives rather than each other. Lastly, and this is quite a biggie, who on earth would be leader instead if Jeremy stepped down? I mean, Angela Eagle, who's currently being pipped as Corbyn's challenger, was pro-Iraq war, and that could be hugely damaging when the Chilcot report finally comes out this week. And Angela Eagle was pro-Remain, and that means 52% of the country already don't agree with her. So how is that going to get voters back on side? Although I suppose remembering the Iraqi war, it wasn't much about what the public wanted anyway, was it? So maybe that's what Angela's all about. But also, why didn't Labour win in 2015? Well, apart from a media attack from all sides on Miliband, they were also too similar to the Conservatives with absolutely no conviction to it. They backed welfare cuts, they were being anti-immigration, they went along with the story that they themselves ruined the economy. I mean, at least with Corbyn you have an ideological opposition, even if it's not a great one or well-delivered. And that is sorely missing from anyone else. Corbyn is, unlike Farage or Boris, actually anti-establishment. He doesn't play by any rules, or really play. Or, I'm not sure, is even aware that the rules are there in the first place. But hey, at least that's different. So, that was... Both sides of the coin, or maybe it's both sides of the fence, or something else that has two sides. Hey, look, right, some things are more complicated than you first think. Hmm. So yeah, it's a mess, and personally I'm leaning towards how good it'd be for Corbyn to stand down and back someone else on the left to be leader instead. Clive Lewis is being pitched as a possible person for that, Uh, he's also only been an MB since 2015, and actually I think a new face to Labour with left-wing ideals would be really good for it, someone without all that kind of baggage behind him. The other option is that the Labour Party splits into two. Uh, You can have Corbyn's party, which would probably be, say, Jeremy Corbyn plays Labour's greatest hits. Uh, And then the PLP party, which could be, say, Labour featuring Adam Lambert or something. 
The problem with this would be that first past the post voting just means that a split party would split the left wing and centre left vote and it would leave the Conservatives with far more power than they had already. And really, everyone should just be focused on changing this government for fuck's sake. September could bring Ewok killing, backstabbing, homophobic, xenophobic disgraces our way and we really need to stop that. So in the next election with UKIP with no leader, an unelected Conservative leader and two possible Labour parties. Yeah, do you hear that? Correct. That's eight Lib Dem members remembering what hope feels like and scribbling a plan on their blackboard with coloured chalk because they're excited. Now back to Asher. So are there other possible ways they could deal with this? Because University of Mexico is the one that I've heard most about. Are there other reasonable solutions? So the first thing to say is all the solutions are way, way outside of what politics is thinking about. And there's nothing that would, there's no solution, in my view, that would sound reasonable to the, to most people right now. Right. Because the problem is so unprecedented in the same way as, you know, if you told people, you know, before climate change that coal and oil and, and gas to a certain extent was, was bad and solar panels of the future, they would think you're some kind of... Sci-fi universe, but I think that's, it's 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 okay that things are outside because things are coming to the mainstream if if necessary. Sure. I mean, one thing which I think deserves more attention is the idea of government taking shares in some of the biggest, richest companies and using some of the dividend money to create jobs. On first glance, that sounds quite radical, but here are a few thoughts as to why it makes more sense than it might seem. Firstly, internet companies, the companies that have got big thanks to thanks to the internet anyway, are tending towards being monopolies. Amazon, Facebook, Google, sure. even Uber in some places, it's almost impossible for a company to come and compete with them and knock them off their perch because for a start, one of those companies will probably buy them. And now, you know, most startups aren't trying to replace Google. They're trying, if anything, to work on themselves until their payday, which is when Google or someone buys them. Mm. And, and so if you have lots of companies, if you have a lot of companies that, well, not a lot, if you have a number of companies that look like monopolies, then they pile up cash. And that's exactly what's happened. There's a, lots, a few big companies have got more money than they, than they know how to invest at the moment. And in the 20th century, the big companies tended to create a lot of jobs, like Ford and um, ICI in the UK. Sure. These companies don't create nearly as many jobs as those big companies did in the past. And the idea of government taking a share in the wealth that they create, because they create a lot of wealth, there's no problem with that, is something that a lot of countries already do. In France, the government manages over 100 billion euros worth of shares in over 70 companies, and many of them are very profitable and very innovative, so they're not like companies which are just kind of hanging on because the right. government's owning their shares. And there are 73 sovereign wealth funds around the world, and they're not just in countries that have a lot of oil, like Saudi Arabia or Norway. They're also in, I think, one of the Dakotas, or both of the Dakotas have one as states. Right. So it's, it's an idea that already exists. And Saudi Arabia, now that oil prices is what it is, are moving towards having a sovereign wealth fund, and they've even taken a lot of ownership in Uber, which is a crazy thought that you, when you get an Uber, you're getting into a kind of Saudi <laughs> wow. and it bonkers. But it's, it's it's already happened. That's not sci-fi at all. Yeah. And the thought is that this government shareholding could be redistributed into job creation. I mean, normally when the economy tanks, government does a stimulus program. That's what the US did in 2009. 
creative or save 1.6 million jobs. Things like building bridges, roads, railways, retrofitting diesel engines to reduce their carbon dioxide output, making tap water safer, researching energy efficiency, improving hospitals and surgeries access to health information, building broadband. I mean, this is a lot of this is, is stuff that the private sector either won't always do enough of or won't do. Sure. Because they won't make a profit. And there's no shortage of jobs to be done. Britain needs more houses. We need more renewable energy if we're going to be, if we're going to reduce our city sufficiently. We need more carers for an ageing population. All of these things, well, at the moment, private sector doesn't do as much as sure. we need to be done. So I think that in a world where the robots have taken the jobs, <laughs> I don't think it's a world in which there isn't enough work to be done. It just might be a world in which the work isn't necessarily profitable, and uh, but there are a few very profitable companies. And in that world, if that world happened, it makes sense for the government to take a share and create more jobs than they do at the moment. Okay, so, so you, you made me feel a lot more hopeful about all this, I have to say. And because I, I think there's also probably, you know, the, the issue is you, we don't want to stop the progression of technology. That's something that's very, very positive. So it's just balancing it so that we all don't make ourselves redundant, I suppose. Right, exactly. Technology is going to march on whatever we do. One company gets in the way and discourages it. It will happen somewhere else. I don't think there's any point looking at the possibility of technology taking jobs and saying and, and being anti-technology because I think much of technology is inevitable. There's a real question about the economic consequences of the technology we've got. I mean, the economy, okay, this will be obvious to some of the people listening, but the economy works because normally because enough money flows from companies through jobs into people's pockets and gets spent again. If there aren't enough jobs, it's not just a problem of people not having jobs. It's also potentially a problem of there not being enough demand in the economy, which means it's tougher for companies to make a profit. It could be fishing in a smaller and smaller pool of purchasing power. So if you want to say to a company, well, what's in it for them to try to fix this problem? The answer is more customers, more demand, right? Sure. So... Great. It sort of feels like that argument should have been used a lot more over the last six years of austerity. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah. Yes, uh, there are many people I know who've done their best. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, and, and I, I just feel I should ask you this purely because these problems are going to be far from over by then, but by the time the listeners are listening to this, do you think this Brexit possibility, do you think that's, because part of me feels like that's probably going to halt technology progression for a while, but with science cuts and everything else, is this, do you think that's going to be, wow. going to have some sort of effect on all of this, isn't it? If Brexit means less money for universities, it means less research and technological progress happening here, and it probably means it's more likely to happen in Luxembourg, you know, or anywhere else yeah, sure, 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 yeah. the money goes, right? <laughs> and all and the so, Luxembourg listeners cheering right now, finally! <laughs> right, exactly, and you know, Luxembourg listeners, I can, you know, I, 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 you know no offence to Luxembourg, but honestly, if, if there's any... <laughs> but, I mean, if there's any way to try and like, keep that money here... I mean, there's a lot of work that's get, that's getting fashionable these in recent years for the first time about just how many, how much of the technology that we use in our day-to-day lives came originally from work that was funded by governments. 
Mariana Mazzucato is a year of her. Yes, an economist, is that right? right? Yes, right. okay, yeah. He's getting more attention and deserves even more attention. Long story short, itemises in her book just how much of your iPhone was paid for by the taxpayer. For example, you know, iPhone works because of the internet, internet works because of the uh, money spent by the defence, the US Department of Defence over years in connecting up computers. Same goes with Siri, I think. And... Yeah, it's not rocket science. Oh, sometimes it is rocket science. Yeah. <laughs> when, when, you, when, you, when you put money into basic research and science, decades later, you get cool stuff that companies, <laughs> companies can make. So, I mean, yeah, with Brexit, I just hope somehow the, uh, the, the money can stay here. Yeah, so do I. So do I. <laughs> Big thanks to Asha for showing us that this robot situation isn't as binary as it looks. Do you see what I did there? No, I'm not sorry. Asha can be found on Twitter at Asha Dresner. That's A-S-H-E-R-D-R-E-S-N-E-R. And do check out his blog at asherdresner.com. As yet, I don't have a guest for next week, so do let me know via the usual contact outlets uh, or any unusual contact outlets, if you like. Send an owl, maybe. Uh, if there is anyone that you'd like me to ask at all or any subjects in particular you would like me to look at. Okay, uh, considering the current piss show of candidates, this week I asked you lot who, from history, fiction or whatever, who you would like to be either the Conservatives or Labour Party leader in an ideal world. And so you did respondeth. At Fooled Again said, could Wally lead the Labour Party so we can enjoy the fun of guessing where he is? Uh, I don't know if we'd want that with a Labour leader. I mean, interestingly, Osborne's been vanished for almost a week now and uh, it's been no fun trying to work out where he is. Um, at Ethan D. Lawrence uh, says, Julius Caesar running both parties at once. It would at least allow English lip majors a wry nod when the backstabbing parties happen. Oh, at two, Ethan D. Lawrence. Um, at AK4 Insurance, <laughs> I love this one. He reckons Columbo uh, because Columbo would do everyone's head in, uh, seldom give a straight answer, and at Prime Minister's questions would be brilliant. Uh, my wife, she's your biggest fan. And then at the end, oh, just one more thing. Also, with Columbo, uh, the solution would be there in the beginning, which would be fantastic. It would make a lot of things very easy. Um, at Gavin Kernow says, as things stand, I'd happily see an Ian Hislop, Paul Merton coalition. But then, if they were in government, what would happen to the panel show? Um... At Kinderschwein, that's a good name, Kinderschwein, uh, child pig, I assume that means. Um, he says, uh, Noam Chomsky, I think it speaks for itself. Uh, Noam does indeed uh, speak for himself, that's one of his many skills. Uh, at Vizzy Rascal says, uh, Paul the Octopus, question mark. I don't know for which party that is, considering that neither of them seem to have any foresight at the moment and constantly seem to be taking ridiculous gambles. Although maybe you shouldn't go with the Conservatives, because after the last referendum, the squid's really fallen. Sorry, not sorry. Uh, at John Beck says Paula Abdul versus MC Cat because she likes it quiet and he likes to shout. But at PMQT, when they get it together, it just all works out. And I like that. But I also remember, uh, I can't remember which one's which. One of them always took two steps forward and then the other one always took two steps back. And while that does mean that when they get together, opposites attract, it does mean that essentially one party will be progressive and one party will be the opposite of progressive. Oh, my God. That's exactly how it already is. 
At Julia says Labour should have Daenerys Targaryen. She freed the slaves and dragons should help with the Welsh vote. God, you know, I was so sad when I found out that dragons didn't really exist in Wales. What a sad day for everyone. Um, at Andy Walker 9 uh, says Labour should have Bill Pullman from Independence Day. Uh, he can unite split beaten scared people against a common foe. Yeah, horrible slimy creatures. Bit like Nigel Farage. Uh, Julia also suggests that for the Tories uh, they could have Pop, who of course looks very like Gove, but is less likely to cause thousands of teachers to quit their jobs. I don't know, we had to watch it quite a lot in primary school and I, I think it really drove a few of mine very mad. Um, at Gibby McDibby says the Tories should have Thomas the Tank Engine True Blue, keep them on the rails, uh, used to chugging around a pointless little island. Nice. Uh, she also says uh, Labour can have Stalin, uh, left-wing enough to keep the three band members happy, and if anyone could enforce party discipline, it'd be him, which is terrifying. Although if it's young Stalin, at least he's hella handsome. Um, at New Obsia, I don't know how you pronounce it, um, they say, I assume you've had Jekyll and Hyde because while they talk and act differently, you can't always tell them apart. Nice. It's like it's 2015 all over again. Um, at RJLLB uh, says anyone but Ant and Deck, the whole left and right thing would jam the electoral pendulum. Oh, but wouldn't it be fun to watch on a Saturday night? Uh, at Amy LRR says Alan Bastard leading the Tories. I'm sure he has at one point. Um, at Matt Has Comedy says the Tories need someone with traditional British values. Henry VIII, his feasts and beheadings can't be any worse than Gove or May. Oh, and think of the field day the tabloids would have over his relationships. Uh, and Matt Hoss also says uh, for Labour, they need someone who's going to bring the party together. I suggest a Chewbacca. Who doesn't love a Wookiee with a plan? Damn good work, Matt Hoss. That would be brilliant. Although imagine all the grooming he'd need before PMQs. Uh, and all the hoovering you'd have to do just in Parliament all the time. At Fluff Logic uh, says Doctor Doom for the Tories. Sure, he's a dictatorial sociopath, but at least the Latvians lived in relative comfort and safety. That is very true. But as uh, I suppose he'd be an EU national living in Latvia, so probably wouldn't be allowed over here anymore. Um, and at Thorne uh, says Brian Blessed, who I believe is the original Northern powerhouse um, minister. If I could just ask you about, I will end you, little man. Now that would be glorious. There'll be a new question coming along next week, so do check our Twitter account at Bro and our Facebook Bro uh, for the questions and send us over the answers. Uh, at some point, there may even be a prize, but probably not, because that's how life works. And that's all for this week's show. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to review the show on iTunes, and you can drop me a line at Bro on Twitter or Facebook or at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Also, there's a few other interesting things you may like to know about going on over the next few months uh, involving live shows that I'm doing or running, uh, especially something I'm planning for later this month, uh, which is hopefully going to go ahead. So if any of that sounds remotely interesting to you, uh, do join my own mailing list at tnndub.co.uk as I'm going to be harassing people mostly from there. Uh, next week, I'll undoubtedly be talking about the long-awaited Chilcot report, where either Tony Blair will be told he has to say sorry like he really means it this time, or actually we'll find out we were all wrong, and making up lies in order to blow the crap out of the country is actually totally above board. And so, hey, I've heard Slovakia have magical shoes that can fire death rainbows in three minutes flat. Let's go kill them all. Thanks again to part-time, partly political researcher and guest finder Matt Hoss and Mark Struthers, who is trying his very best to make my stupid loud voice less so. Also, a shout-out to Robert Ramsey this week, who is at Moth Twice Born on Twitter for a gag of his that I totally pinched for this show. Thanks, Robert. Really appreciate it. This week's show was brought to you by the letters A and A, which spell the very word most of us are thinking when we hear about the UK's current economy situation. Ah. Uh...
time in this race. It's the big bankers who pocket bonuses. And I'm very sorry for that. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.